The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 to 31, and then 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians." Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses." 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, in heaven, direct us in your word, guide us in the truth, and may your spirit help us now, we humbly pray in Jesus' name, amen. Article 34 of the Belgic Confession regarding holy baptism refers to the Son of God who is our Red Sea through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land 
of Canaan. Last week we considered the account of the crossing of the Red Sea, which begins in chapter 13 and verse 17 and goes through chapter 14 and verse 31, the latter portion of which was just read. And we noted in particular that Israel's redemption was was all of grace, that they didn't play a part in it at all. In chapter 14 and verse 13, Moses basically says to the people, don't fear, stand still, keep your eyes open and be quiet. And what does Yahweh do? Well, He sends an east wind, parts the waters. The people walk through on dry ground between walls of water. And then after they're safely through, the walls of water come crashing down upon the Egyptians so that they're shaken off in the sea. Yahweh fights for Israel and destroys Pharaoh and his chariot army in the Red Sea. The waters that were salvation for Israel were destruction for Egypt. And God is glorified in overthrowing Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. We also noted how Israel seems to have a short covenantal memory after they'd witnessed all that Yahweh had done in Egypt and have Yahweh in the pillar of the cloud and fire. And they despair when they see Pharaoh's army there before them, even declaring that it would have been better to have remained a slave in Egypt than be free men and die in the wilderness. But Yahweh is patient with them and rescues them in this remarkable and unforgettable way, which still excites the minds, imaginations, and faith of God's people today. Well, given that this story is so rich, I thought it would be good for us to come back to it and give it a bit more, uh, give a bit more time to some of the theological implications that are presented, particularly in light of Paul's teaching in Corinthians. When we consider what we just heard in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, along with a few other key texts, the, the Red Sea crossing takes on even more meaning and significance, directing us to Christ, our Savior and King, and what our salvation further entails. Now, I realize that we don't have the context of the first nine chapters of 1 Corinthians firmly set in our understanding. But what is the immediate context? What has Paul just told the Corinthians? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. He's exhorting them to run, to compete, to be like disciplined athletes in their faith, even as he sets before them his own example and practice. He's exhorting the Corinthians as to what they are to be doing, how they are to be conducting their lives, even taking personal responsibility for it. The Corinthian church had plenty of challenges. They were dealing with divisions, some pretty serious sins and internal strife. And Paul again and again calls them to the righteous life which the gospel requires, the life that is lived by those who have been saved by the grace of God. That's what he's doing at the end of chapter 9 leading into chapter 10, which also contains a warning. But with what does his argument begin in chapter 10? And what is arguably the key word? Listen to it again. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them them, and the rock was Christ. So, So five times Paul makes use of the word all to impress his point. Who are the all? 
Well, in context, our fathers, which is a way of referring to the Israel which departed from Egypt. That also included the mixed multitude. Uh, it wasn't like the mixed multitude got through the Red Sea another way. Well, to whom is Paul writing? Well, the church in Corinth, which would have been comprised of mostly or exclusively Gentile believers. Now, whether or not uh, the implicit presence of Gentiles with Israel is to be understood might be too much of a stretch. But theologically, Paul makes the connection that the Gentile Christians are, are associated with, are connected with the Israel of the Exodus. You know, the Exodus account is as much their history as it would be for Paul, who was an Israelite by blood, even a Benjamite. And how can that be the case? Well, on account of Jesus, on account of Christ, who was the true Israelite, the fullness of Israel, and all of the promises that were made. And and Israel is now transformed, we might say, even replaced by the church. Israel as a nation, as God's special people, uh, no longer exists. Uh, and that ceased to be the case in AD 70. But also notice that Paul calls these Corinthians brothers. So he's treating them like, uh, he's treating them as family, even as he's talking about fathers. Maybe you even know or recall how Paul's letter to the Corinthians begins. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's writing to the saints, to those with sanctuary access, to those who've been set apart as holy unto Christ. And yes, they have some serious sin issues. Hence, his calling them to repentance over the course of the letter. But he doesn't use any type of language such as genuine believers or true believers. He doesn't qualify matters in that way. No, Paul doesn't make those qualifications, but calls these brothers to repentance precisely because they are objectively identified as believers, as those who bear the name of Christ being in covenant with him. And what does Paul say was true of these fathers of the, of the Israel that left Egypt? All were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. To state the obvious, all means all. Uh, the Israelites didn't leave their children behind, which you recall was one of the sticking points of negotiation with Pharaoh. And so they too were baptized into Moses. This is, this is an implicit argument for the baptism of our children, of our infants, for covenantal baptism. And yes, this is theology by typology, but we're comfortable with that. Because that's what the New Testament writers teach us, whether Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, or others. What is typology? The study of types. All right, what's a type? Well, Paul uses this very word in verse 6, which states, Now these things took place as types for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Again, the word types is typically translated examples, which is okay, but lacks some of the import of the word. Type doesn't just mean example, which you could almost read in a moralistic, Aesop's fable kind of, of a way, but rather conveys the ideas to strike, to impress the impress of a blow, a mark, mold, outline, or figure. So God has impressed upon history 
the history is found in Scripture in particular, this mold or outline that then also helps us to understand the context in which we live after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, because these types all point forward to Him, His work, etc. See, there's correspondence between them. And, and God brought about the actual events in history in this way for the express purpose of conveying these truths and these realities. For example, why are there so many head wounds that take place in the Bible? Because of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And so whether it's J.L. driving a tent peg into the temple of Sisera or David's cutting off the head of Goliath, The typology is there, culminating in Christ's crucifixion upon the hill of the skull. And even how the church also becomes serpent crushers, as Paul relates at the end of Romans. So we employ this typological reading of Scripture, and in doing so, we're reading in the Bible in 3D, if you will. But it takes on greater depth and dimension, as it should. And should we expect anything less from a book that's breathed out by God, that's Holy Spirit inspired? You know, there are amazingly complex storylines and levels of symbolism found in human literature, which is just a reflection of being those writers being made in the image of God. Well, then why should we expect anything less from the author of all things? Well, let's unpack a bit more what Paul's saying here and even compare it with the text in Exodus 14 and a couple of companion passages. Now, one detail that I wanted to come back to that was mentioned last week is the fact that when Israel passes through the Red Sea on the dry ground from uh, from west to, to east, with walls of water to the north and the south, when we then kind of turn that picture and look at it from the top, so to speak, then Israel's crossing with walls of water pictures waters above and waters below. Well, this echoes the creation account in Genesis 1, verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So the waters get separated, and what's the expanse called? Heaven. So Israel is figuratively in heaven in the firmament heaven, when they pass through the Red Sea. Later in the creation week, what is put in the firmament heaven? The sun, moon, and stars. To do what? To rule. As one pastor observes, the firmament heaven is the connection, as it were, between heaven and earth. Israel is between the waters on dry land. They are the connection between heaven and earth. They are this priestly people who stand before God for the world and before the world for God. They are the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament between the waters. So then with that in mind, then Paul says, our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, what did the cloud represent? Well, Yahweh's presence, the Holy Spirit's presence. There may be a sense that the cloud provided protection during the day from the heat and certainly provided light at night. But if we combine the imagery of Israel in the firmament heaven and under the cloud of God's presence then there may also be a sense that Israel is incorporated into this cloud, this heavenly cloud. And while you might wonder at that upon first hearing, when we go to Hebrews chapter 12, what do we find there? A great cloud of witnesses, of the saints who've gone before us, who faithfully testify to what God has done, who are part of the heavenly assembly upon the heavenly Mount Zion. 
See, the saints are part of the glory cloud. The incense, the prayers go up and are part of the cloud, the smoke from the offerings, etc., etc. These are all pictures of this more important cloud and even the reality in which we live now, whether we realize it or not. But also with this imagery under the cloud, we need to tie in what we read in Psalm 77 when Asaph declares, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, last week we spoke to the reality, uh, to the real possibility of Yahweh unleashing a thunderstorm upon Pharaoh and his chariot army before bringing the walls of water crashing in upon them. Another aspect of the imagery may very well be that it, that it rained from above upon Israel as they passed through. So thus, they were baptized uh, by waters from above. So water was poured out or sprinkled on them from above. Which then, of course, leads to the joke between Presbyterians and Baptists that it was the Egyptians who were the ones who were immersed. I'm teasing, of course. But, but pouring, uh, the pouring of water in baptism, even as you saw this morning, reflects this imagery. Even the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. See, the imagery and the actions aren't accidental. Let's tie in another strand to this. In his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, what does Jesus tell him? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the word often translated born again can also be rendered from above. And some of your Bibles might even note that uh, in the margin. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's, he's alluding forward to, to baptism and the work of the Holy Spirit, even as pictured in baptism. He goes on, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Well, how should we understand the terms flesh and spirit here? Flesh is bad? No, flesh equals Adam being born in Adam and spirit equals Holy Spirit. He's the life giver. He has been from creation, went hovering over the waters and still is today in the new creation. Even as we confess week after week, he's the Lord and giver of life in the Nicene Creed. Jesus then says, do do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So baptism, which is a picture of new birth, comes from above. And so the waters are poured out and come from above. That's the symbolism. Next, Paul says they all pass through the sea. There's another tie to water and a water ordeal. Uh, And as we noted uh, at the outset, the Belgic Confession makes a connection between passing through the Red Sea and baptism. And there certainly echoes back to Noah and his water ordeal as well. And by virtue of this water ordeal, by virtue of this baptism, Israel's identity was changed. They were rescued. They were redeemed. They were saved by God. And again, it was all of grace. But then the the apostle ties it all together in verse 2 when he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized into Moses. What does that mean? Why would Paul say that? What are the implications? 
Well, what's the last thing we hear in Exodus 14, the final line? And the people feared Yahweh, and they trusted, or they believed in Yahweh and in Moses, his servant. Of course, you remember how Yahweh had Moses play a part in the Red Sea crossing, telling him his plans for gaining glory over Pharaoh in Egypt ahead of time, but then also instructing Moses to stretch out his staff and hand to divide the waters, and then to do so again for the waters to return and shake off the Egyptians. So Moses is Yahweh's servant. He's the man through whom Yahweh acts, in part, in bringing about the redemption of his people. And for Paul to say that they were baptized into Moses is to set forth Moses as a Christ figure. He's the man who's already been with Yahweh on the mountain. Go back to the burning bush episode on Sinai. He's been in his presence on Sinai. Moses figuratively comes from heaven, from on the mountain, and he's sent to lead the people out of bondage and slavery. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He came from heaven, took on flesh, was willing even to set aside his heavenly glory in order to cleanse and rescue his people. Being baptized into Moses likely includes the covenant at Sinai between Yahweh and Israel. And, and what's, what's the preamble to that covenant? What, is, what does Yahweh say? I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. See, that's the condition of redemption, of true freedom. The law... The Ten Commandments, the law, was never, ever, 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 ever given as a means for salvation. No, it was given because Israel was saved and they needed to know how to live accordingly. And as a slight aside, but one I think that's related, we've rightly made much of the fact that Israel didn't participate in their redemption from Egypt, that it was Yahweh who did all the fighting and rescued them. But is Israel later called on to fight. Yes, particularly when they go into the promised land. Now, it's true, Yahweh fights for them and their faith when going into war is to be in Yahweh. But nevertheless, they had to go into battle in order to take the land in obedience to Yahweh's commands. Well, isn't it true that we likewise have nothing to do with our salvation from sin, but are then called by faith in Christ from first to last, trusting in the help of the Spirit to obey His Word? to lives of self-discipline, and the pursuit of holiness, of working out our salvation in fear and trembling, of engaging in prayer and in worship and in putting on the whole armor of God and taking a stand for righteousness and truth and taking dominion over all things in our personal lives, families, work, neighborhoods, etc. We're not to be passive in the life to which we've been saved to live, for which we've been marked out to live by virtue of our baptism. And more could be said about the next couple of verses and what Paul says, that they all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, which was Christ. Paul, you know, Paul's saying that they ate and drank Christ, which, of course, immediately reminds us of the Lord's Supper, as it should. And here's another text, even before chapter 11, to which we can point for the practice of children participating at the Supper. And the fact that it was spiritual doesn't make it nothing. You know, Paul is not suddenly being Gnostic and putting things into an ethereal realm of thought or some other such nonsense. To say it was spiritual is to say that it came from the Spirit, that it had a heavenly source. And yes, they were actually fed manna, and they actually drank water from the rock, the spiritual rock which was Christ. But these were also types of the realities that we now have in Christ. Notice the sequence. You pass through the waters, and then what do you do? You eat and drink. 
What's the prerequisite for participation at the Lord's table? Baptism. That's the proper order, the proper sequence. And it's good and right for us to have a view of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper because uh, to have such a view because they're all of grace. They're, they're God's gifts to us in the Lord Jesus. And they're our spiritual food and drink, which again, shouldn't send us off into contemplations in the clouds about the meaning of spiritual but that we're participating in the Holy Spirit's work and activity in the world, even as we're called to as the church. You know, what does Jesus say in John 7? Rivers of living water of living water to flow out of us, out of the church. And here we are gathered on God's mountain in faith, in worship. And then what do we do? Well, we flow out into the world, bringing and demonstrating life, the true life to be lived in covenant with Jesus. You know, and really, uh, this is exciting stuff. And, and it demonstrates to us how a typological reading of Scripture further impresses upon us the realities of what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done and are doing, and our participation in the renewal that is taking place, you know, even, even the good works in Christ Jesus in which we're called to walk. Ephesians 2.10. Well, I realize today's sermon is a little bit out of the ordinary in some respects. And an underlying Paul's theology here is a warning to the Corinthians, uh, even as we go on to read about in chapter 10. And those covenantal warnings are certainly applicable for the church today. But a further exploration will have to wait for another time. Nevertheless, what are, what are maybe a few points we can come back to and amplify a bit? First, that we need to be clear that the nation of Israel today has no special status before the Lord, that they are like any other nation to whom Jesus requires that they bow the knee in obedience to the gospel. Similarly, the Jews as a people are not set apart in some special way. Yes, we might say they have a wonderful heritage, and as a people they've been highly productive and prosperous in plenty of ways and have exhibited attributes worth emulating, but they're beholden to obey the gospel as are all nations and people groups, etc., We need to be clear in our thinking that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. And the church is now the new Israel and the people who are to be a light to the nations. If there are Jews that profess Christ as the Son of God, then they're part of the new Israel, as are we. And that identity is more important than their national identity, which doesn't carry any theological import. Still more, we do well to reject claims coming from Christians applying misguided theology that the United States has particular obligations to the nation of Israel because they are God's special people. That's simply not true and often comes from dispensational theology that's highly flawed. You know, emotional arguments are made and atrocities portrayed and they are awful, uh, but the conversation should be governed by what the Bible has to say about just war. Still more, there's nothing particularly special about the physical land of Israel since Christ's fulfilling work. Yes, there are historical places to see. But the scope of Jesus' kingdom entails much more than a patch of Middle Eastern real estate near the Mediterranean Sea. It already belongs to him. And so does Palestine and Iran and all the rest of the Middle East and all the ends of the earth. It's through the church, through believers living in these countries, that this reality comes to a greater realization. And much, again, much more could be said, um, but 
this will have to suffice for now. Maybe more conversations can happen over lunch in a little bit. Second, and maybe related to the first, is to consider the importance of your baptism. And as you've witnessed Mariah's baptism this morning, consider your own. As the Directory for Public Worship of God instructs to those present at a baptism, to look back at their baptism, to repent of their sins against their covenant with God, to stir up their faith, to improve and make right use of their baptism, and of the covenant sealed thereby betwixt God and their souls. Improving your baptism, how do you do that? Through ongoing confession and repentance for sin, but also in walking in faithfulness to Christ, in obedience to His Word, which are the terms of the covenant into which you've been saved, trusting and resting in Christ for your salvation, seeking the ongoing help of the Holy Spirit. And you entered into this covenant, into this relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at your baptism. There and then you received this new name and identity, which also presents an important reality. Recall Jesus' statement to Nicodemus about being born from above. And then jump back to John's, prologue, uh, John's prologue in chapter 1 where he states, The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave authority to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, becoming a child of God is not a matter of blood. Bloodlines don't matter when it comes to salvation, and nor can a man do anything in and of his own power to make himself a child of God. It's all of grace. It's all the work of the Spirit. And the only blood that really matters to Christians is the blood of Christ. You see, for believers, water is thicker than blood. The waters of baptism mean more. And when you have that, when you have that identity as a son or daughter of your Father in heaven, that you're one of the king's kids, that that should mean more to you than any other approval or recognition that you could ever desire or have from a, from a, from a father, mother, brother, sister, or friend. You bear the name of Jesus. And there is no salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Many of you are familiar with Pastor Rich Lust's I Belong to God, a covenantal catechism, and perhaps use it in your homes. And if you don't, then I highly recommend it to you. There are a number of reasons for which it is commendable and perhaps even superior to some of our larger and more traditional catechisms. But I find the opening questions particularly poignant for their beauty and their simplicity. Question one, who are you? I am a child of God. Question two, What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that I belong to Him and He loves me. Question three. What makes you a child of God? Grace. God's free gift of love that I do not deserve and cannot earn. Question four. How do you know you are a child of God? Because I am baptized in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God made me His child in baptism just as His Word promises. Indeed, it does. So you can gladly and confidently go forth unto new obedience by faith, bearing His name as a son, as a daughter, 
who has been baptized into Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the marvelous way in which it is written, for the marvelous way in which the story of redemption is told to us. And may our faith love it all the more and cling to it all the more fiercely and bear fruit to your honor and glory. Indeed, may we consider how we can improve upon our baptisms this day and go forth to greater faithfulness, to greater repentance, uh, to greater obedience to your word and all that that entails. Strengthen us by your spirit. Strengthen us at your table for these things, even as you feed us with spiritual food and drink. Christ, our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.